1: Welcome back to the Rupa Subramanya show. It's great to have you here once again and spend some of your valuable time with me. This past week has seen an upsurge in protests in China against the regime's zero um, uh, Covid policy, a very draconian um, pandemic policy essentially ended up locking down millions and millions of people in China um, and which resulted in many regional lockdowns when most of the rest of the world has opened up. Protests against the regime are unusual. We all remember the images of unarmed protesters staring down tanks in Tiananmen Square in Beijing in 1989. At the same time, people in Eastern Europe were throwing off the shackles of communism. The Chinese regime survived the biggest test of their existence and mercilessly crushed the peaceful protests. There has been no significant challenge to the communist regime since then. Today, we have a great guest to discuss what's going on in China right now. Uh, Tiffany Meyer is host of China and focus for NTD Epoch Times. Thanks, Tiffany, for joining me. Um, so we're here to talk about China. Uh, public protests, um, at least what is visible, visible to us uh, in the West is not very common in China. Uh, what do you make of the recent protests? And do you think they have any serious chance of toppling the communist regime?
2: Well, I think your first part about like what we can see is very Mm. important, right? Because that is the question. It's like, how are we being able to see these videos? And you see like the TikTok symbol on a lot of them on Twitter. And so it's like, who's controlling that? So there's talks of the infighting, right? Because Chinese leader Xi Jinping recently secured his third term. He basically removed anyone who was associated with the previous one. So either Hu Jintao or Jiang Zemin, who just died today. And so there are those people supporters, and they're not happy with Xi Jinping doing that. So some are saying that's how these videos are getting out here so that we're seeing it. And then inside China, what's interesting this time is even on the like Chinese social media. So like WeChat and like the Weibo ones, there's even talks about that. There's like people sending the little white squares emojis in the chat. So that's something different from normal because it's like, you know, often there are protests not at this level, but around China, but to the fact that you have that being passed around on Chinese social media apps in China is something we knew we're not seeing yet. And if it's enough to really topple Xi Jinping, I think it's too early to tell right now. But it is definitely something we're seeing that's like really big, right? It's like something we haven't really seen in the last 30 years, basically, or since 1989, those protests. Um, So that's definitely very interesting.
1: Yeah. So, I mean, the, the protests are significant. Uh, For sure. I mean, we haven't seen anything like this since 1989, since uh, Tiananmen Square. And, uh, um, you know, so uh, if not toppling the regime, will the protests lead to any kind of change in uh, Chinese government policy, um, you know, especially as it relates to the uh, to their draconian zero covid policy? Um, And also, it's very interesting that they've allowed these protests uh, so far. Does that reflect a softening of their position? Uh, which which normally allows no protests whatsoever, or were they just caught off guard here?
2: I think you're seeing kind of a combination. It's like some of the maybe guards, right? Maybe they're more sympathetic, but mm-hmm. at the same time, you are seeing more police showing up, right? But then there also seems to be a push and pull between. So the demonstrators or the protesters almost seem to know how far they can push. So you'll see like whole cities coming out and protesting with the white papers. And the point of the white paper is like, it doesn't have anything on it. So you can't, like the regime, the Chinese party can't go after them being like, oh, look, you're inciting, you know, revolt or, you know, violence or treason. They can't say anything because there's literally nothing written on the paper. But even so, there have been a few examples of students getting pulled away, even just holding a white piece of paper. So that's pretty interesting. but. With the whole spread, like you are seeing, you know, whole cities coming out and demonstrating, but then the next day, them being empty. So it's like almost that like they have an idea of how far they can push, but we are still in the early stages. So it's like, are we going to see continued, you know, demonstrations mm-hmm. and protests? Is it going to be a long term thing that really rises up? And I think um the people just have really had enough, right? It's like they've been under so many lockdowns, so many extended lockdowns. And then the fire in Aramchi, the capital of Xinjiang, that I think really set this off where... The fire started on the 15th floor of the building. And then, because of the building being locked down, many people couldn't get out. The doors were sealed. And then the fire trucks couldn't get close enough to get the water. So, you see videos of the fire trucks with like really powerful streams of water going over basically another building, but not being able to reach the main sure. one. And so, with that, it's like really sparked. But what is interesting with the protests is like they're not just saying, end the COVID lockdowns, right? China's zero COVID policy. They're saying end the CCP and calling for Xi Jinping to step down. So they're really calling for freedom. But then on that note too, it's like a lot of these are students, right? So they might have never heard of the Tiananmen Square massacre. Like most of them probably never had, even if they had parents who knew, because in China, it was like super lockdown, right? It's like no one knew about it, even people in China at that time, unless you were part of it. So it's like, these students maybe think they're trailblazers. It's like, we don't know the extent of how much they know, like probably some have VPNs and are able to get out, but it's like, it is a very interesting thing to be watching and witnessing right now. Really incredible, really.
1: Yeah, so, you know, Xi Jinping is by all you know, everybody knows him as a strongman leader. Um, So would you say that the protests right now are much a critique of his authoritarian rule as they are of the communist regime in general?
2: I think there's like both. So you are seeing, you know, the people just having had enough, but I think it also goes back to the why we're seeing these videos, right? I think part of it is the internal party fighting. So the people who are in power but unhappy that, Xi Jinping is like really doing something no one else really was able to I think on unless you compare him to like uh, Mao Zedong the original communist leaders like no one other after that because they were like oh we're presidents right it's like they're trying to use that term being like oh we're gonna have term limits but he just broke that and so the other you know supporters of say Jiang Zeming, who just died or like Hu Jintao and the other ones They're not happy with that. And so there's a lot of talks of the in-party fighting. So you kind of have two levels. You have the political level, the internal fighting, and then you have the level on where the public is, right, where they've just really, really had enough. So it's like seeing how those two will interact could determine what happens going forward. But I think we are seeing, you know, more of an awareness because with Xi Jinping coming in, his latest speech after the 20th Party Congress, he was really focusing in um, increasing the intellectual and ideological rhetoric and really closing off on the economic front. And so he's basically making everyone be like, you're going to live on less and be happy about it, right? But with this communist society, it's always been about giving the people just enough so they don't revolt, but not enough that they're, you know, able to think for themselves or like live well. So it's like a really precarious time because it's like, Asking them to live on less, but be happy about it, and so I think we're starting to see people just being like, "No, that's not acceptable."
1: So you know, here's a question: speaking about the economy, um, why is it that um, uh, I mean, data from China often tends to be, you know, uh, you know, you, you have to take it with a grain of salt to some extent. But you know, when you have a zero COVID policy and entire regions are under lockdown, how is economic activity even happening?
2: Right. So with that, it's yeah. been going way down, <laughs> but they did come yeah. up with one thing, which is a like a, a closed loop. <laughs> so they forced the people to like be locked down in the factory so you can still work. You just can't leave it. And so that's how they've been able to get certain sectors to keep working. But even with that, it's like you're already seeing a lot of issues. So with like the Foxconn protests recently, right? That's a massive Apple assembly Mm -hmm. line. So now you're seeing Apple saying there's going to be delays in the iPhone 14 because of that. And Apple as a company saying they're going to, you know, start moving production to India, you know, and other countries. And so Apple's not the only one. You're seeing other companies also struggling, like Tesla wasn't reaching quite the goals they thought they were going to hit in China after opening their latest Giga factory there, right? So it's many companies like external Western companies are looking at this situation with the continued zero COVID lockdowns, even with the closed loops, but everything they're like is this even sustainable? Cause especially after the pandemic, we saw so many supply chain issues, right? Like we felt it everywhere around the world with say either PPE, the personal protective equipment, or just in general, right? All the goods were being slow line. Like last year's Christmas holiday season was like such a mess because you yeah. know, all the all our all our everything was just stuck in ships and not able to enter ports. So yeah. I think in general, you are seeing from every level, from the consumer level and then the business and then like all the levels just reconsidering. So, and then China's, economic situation in general was already kind of struggling. You have the real estate crisis, right? The biggest, most infamous one, I guess, would be Evergrande. And so you have so many of that. And the real estate sector in China makes up about 30% of their GDP. So it's a really big issue. And so you see all these different sectors. So is it enough to really topple it and like really create fundamental change? I think it is still too early to tell, but we are seeing changes like there are more and more people talking about decoupling uh
1: there yeah there's been talk about reshoring uh for a very long time and i i I, you know in, in countries like india and vietnam were supposed to benefit from that uh from from companies moving away like apple moving away but uh i think it's happening it's it's but it's it's still very slow i think china is still my sense is that china is still attractive but uh but you know if it goes on like this i think i think it's going to become less and less attractive um uh you know especially with if this political instability um you know just uh Taking a step back from the current protest, uh, protest, Western observers often point to this cognitive dissonance between increased economic freedom and uh, the possibility to get uh, to amass great wealth in China um, against the absence of any political freedoms. Uh, and many Western observers have predict- predicted for a very long time that this tension, this inherent tension in the Chinese model would, uh, would, would be its unraveling and it cause the system to explode, essentially. But so far, that hasn't happened. Um, and, and more generally, predictions of doom and gloom about China uh, by Western uh, experts just have ended up being wrong. What, what is it about China that so many of us in the West just get it wrong time and time again?
0: This episode is brought to you by Shopify.
2: Well, I think a big part of that goes back to actually when Jiang Zemin took power, right, and then really opened up China by having, you know, China enter the World Trade Organization. So many, you know, the U.S. and many free market com- countries were like, oh, this will help, you know, help with engagement and really help liberalize and democratize China. That didn't happen. But instead, what happened was like the free markets became less free. They became dependent on the Chinese market. So there's the cheap labor costs, which now many are like, oh, you know, we can move to perhaps India or Mexico, even, you know, anywhere else. But the other issue with that is the intellectual property. So throughout that, we have lost, like not just the US, but like so many companies have lost all of their intellectual property to China, just in that process. So just having to like produce in China, you have to make things there. You have to often join joint ventures if you wanna make more capital. And then what happens is they're like, well, you have to give us something. So then you get, you know, you have to hand over your patents or your trade secrets. And then so now it's like, even if you wanted to pull away, well, you can't because now China owns your intellectual property rights. And so there's that issue. It's like it's not only just the labor costs. Right. It's like, okay, many people are like, oh, just manufacture in USA, you know, just like Mm -hmm. make it all here. It'll be great. But it's like there's so many different factors involved, right? There's the sheer amount of money you have to put in just to create the plant here again, right? It's like, that's a lot of billions just to do that. Mm -hmm. And then train the people, right? It's like, we don't really have that workforce. And China's been sending people over for years, like in the universities and like all the levels. And then often, maybe not the people themselves knowingly, but they're used as spies to then take that. So it's like, there's so many different sectors. And so now many companies are facing that issue where they're like, we really want to um, offshore, or like onshore, bring it back, but we can't because either just, it's not, it's not just the labor costs. It's also, you know, just the IP, they don't have it anymore. And so there's so many different issues, but that being said, I feel like we are seeing, you know, movement towards it's like you have different countries really evaluating that, reevaluating that and being like, is this sustainable, right? Because I think back then when it first started, there was a lot of short-term thinking. It's like, oh, look at all this money, like China, it's like this magical land, 1.4 billion people. You know, if you just get $1 mm-hmm. from all of those people, oh, we'd all be rich. Yeah. That didn't really pan out for anyone. And so now there's a lot of um, hard looks at, everything being like, okay, what can we do now? So you're starting to see different things being implemented, like maybe small steps in the right direction. So who knows how much it'll take before it starts snowballing into actual tangible action, but there are little signs, I think.
1: Uh, why would uh, Xi Jinping do this? I mean, it's like a self-inflicted wound, right? I mean, surely he knows what is happening in the rest of the world. Everybody else is moving on. Economic activity is uh, picking up. Um, um, and uh, whereas in China, people are being locked down in factories. This, uh, uh, this, uh, there are protests now. Um, what is, what's he thinking? What is the, what is the strategy here?
2: Well, I think ultimately for him, it's about political power and control. So since the very beginning of the pandemic, they've been telling their people, because everything in China is controlled by the party, right? So they've been telling the people like, oh, this virus is like the most dangerous thing, and there's almost a stigma around it. So if you get the virus, right, you're moved to these quarantine camps that they build. And anyone in close contact to you, even though they don't have symptoms, they don't have the virus, they're also put there. So it's all about like this fear in the people, right? And then they've been told since the pandemic started, like, look at what the Western countries or other countries are doing. They're really dumb. They're getting it wrong. We're doing it right. And we have so few cases because like from our own reporting, they're not revealing the true number. There's no No, way it's at 4,000, right? It's like, but they're (laughs) telling their people that, right? And then they point to the numbers in like America, for instance, are like, look, you know, over like half a million, like all these, a million, you know, all these cases, what a disaster. Look at how great we're doing. But two years later, can they suddenly tell their people, oh, uh, sorry, we were wrong, right? It's like, they're not going to admit that. But within it, it's like, are you going to see maybe other sectors stepping forward when then without being silenced, right, you did have the, you know, medical journalists or just independent journalists in the beginning of the pandemic trying to sound the alarms and then they were, you know, accused of spreading rumors, the regime's favorite line, like, (laughs) spreading rumors and get sentenced and then mysteriously die. Um, And so... It's, it's ultimately about power and control. And that's like the whole thing with the Communist Party. They're like, you know, oh, communism, it's for the people we care about the people, but it really isn't. But the issue is there's kind of like two layers of everything. Mm -hmm. So it's like, you know, on the front end, what they tell the outside world, you know, oh, we so care about the people. So then you have um, Westerners like Henry Kissinger or like Elon Elon Musk, too, or uh, Canadians, Prime Minister Trudeau being like, wow, you know, these communist leaders, they really do just care about the people. But then if you were (laughs) actually to go to China and see what's happening, not like the acts that they show the outside people, if you actually see how the people are living. Yeah they're being treated absolutely horribly. So there's that disconnect and the like two and the like hidden layers and the two levels of speech and everything so but with the the pandemic and the zero COVID it's ultimately about control and then it's like he's he's you know dug his stake on this hill he he just can't suddenly go back like that was one of his biggest things and then in the 20th party congress speech he reiterated like oh we're gonna wipe out COVID like you can't just suddenly be like oh sorry guys I was wrong (laughs) we're gonna follow America. And so, you know, it's like (laughs) he's put his all of his eggs in that basket to follow the zero COVID. So,
1: yeah, extraordinary. Um, You know, taking a geopolitical view now, uh, China has become increasingly uh, assertive and is directly going head to head with the U.S., uh, to try to become the world's next superpower. Uh, Russia is preoccupied these days uh, with the war in Ukraine. Uh, so China is really kind of the only really, uh, the only main threat now to U.S. hegemony in the world. Uh, how do you see this contest playing out in the coming years? I think
2: the biggest issue with that is um, from, say, the American or more Western perspective, normally we think of war as on the kinetic level. So America doesn't see themselves in a war with China, you know, they're like, oh, there's maybe a Cold War, the furthest they see it, but there's like, oh, there's no bombs, there's no military conflict. But the real thing is like the Chinese regime has been at war with America for at least 30 years, but it's through unrestricted warfare. So that was uh, based on a book by two Chinese military colonels in 1999. And it has like 24 different warfares. And it's like through the media, through financial means, through the law, like the Hong Kong Mm -hmm. National Security Law, that is no legal you know, anyone in the legal field will say that's legit, but they just try all these different things. And then they even have police centers around the world, right, where they can use that to pressure dissidents or human rights activists and everything outside of their own country and force them back to China. So you have all these different things. And then the intellectual property or the influencing our education system, right, with the Confucius Institutes and everything. So they're already you know, almost like rewriting us. And the whole point of unrestricted warfare is you divide a country internally, and you make it so unstable that you don't even have to come in with the tanks or like the bombs, like they're already destroying themselves. And you don't have to do anything. So we're already seeing that playing out in certain aspects, right? You had like the Black Lives Matter protests the peaceful protests last year, you have the Antifa movement and the critical race theory in schools, all these teachings being like, oh, America is inherently racist. It's a terrible place, you know, and it's like, how dare you talk about the what's happening in China, right? You have all these different things. And then it's moving us further and further away. And it's like, there are actual threats out there that will impact generations to come. But instead, you know, we're destroying ourselves, essentially. And so, you know, that's kind of where it is right now. But will our leaders wake up in time? Hopefully, right? That's, uh, there's, we're not done yet, right? There's still a chance. Um, But right now, it's a very precarious situation.
1: Yeah, I mean, speaking of leaders here in Canada, our leader, um, you know, Justin Trudeau has expressed some admiration for China's, China's model many years ago. Um, uh, I I don't know if he still believes in that, uh, but he expressed great uh, admiration for China's dictatorship. Uh, But, you know... uh, right now I mean I uh, many observers have pointed out that the government here doesn't seem to have a very clear strategy when it comes to dealing with China as you're probably aware we had uh, the relations uh, got complicated uh, over uh, just just before the pandemic when the two michaels were um, uh, were essentially held were, were held prisoners uh, in in China and they were accused of being spies um, I the, that relationship hasn't really recovered uh, uh, much the two michaels are now back in Canada, Um, Canada doesn't seem to have too many levers. Um, There seems to be this tension between uh, strong economic ties with China. China is still pretty uh, attractive um, uh, on the one hand, and then you have this desire to contain China's expansionist tendencies. Where does it leave countries like Canada in dealing with China?
2: Well, it's a tricky situation, right? It's like yeah. as you laid out there's the economic yeah. side. And I think the the main issue China has the Chinese Communist Party has really figured out is the elite capture. So you have people who are just in it for their self-interest, right? So they figured out like, oh, if we pay them enough money. And so you have that in every government, like not just Canada, but also in America. And so that really impacts then the policies. So there are people who want to you know, contain it and make sure we're not ending up in a war down the road or losing more. But then you have people in power who are bought out by the Chinese regime. Um, you have in every place, right? So. That's what's really tricky. You have business leader or in America, like people on Wall Street, people in the financial sector, like even if Congress wants to do something, mm-hmm. then you have the banks come in, like our pension funds for the military are invested in Chinese companies. So you know it's mm-hmm. like it's an insane situation where people who fought their whole lives for freedom or against communism are actually helping that regime persecute people or you know do these atrocities do these human rights abuses and until that's really looked at and until the cash flow is stopped to the regime it's going to be really hard to make any changes no matter like how much people talk and be like oh we're gonna put some more ships here or like oh we're gonna you know build some more navy submarines it's like until that cash flow is ended it's going to be really hard to see any real improvement
1: Yeah, well... One final question, uh, Tiffany, um, you know, back to um, our favorite uh, pandemic measure, zero COVID policy. Uh, With the exception of Australia and New Zealand, no Western country uh, pursued it. Although uh, there was a lot of, uh, there there, there were calls by uh, some well-known medical, uh, public health officials here for such a policy right here in Canada. We came very close to it actually. Um, There's no question the Western response to COVID, including lockdowns and vaccine mandates, were driven by the authoritarian Chinese model. Um, If you remember, like, I think it was Italy that first initiated the lockdowns and that was, basically inspired by China, and then everybody else followed suit. Do you think the West made a mistake in following China's lead and how to deal with the pandemic? Um, There's this paradox here that the West is supposed to be democratic and liberal, um, but oftentimes is attracted to the Chinese approach. um, This is happening in the the context of a very uh, illiberal and undemocratic society. What do you make of that?
2: I think the biggest issue there is we didn't realize, you know, that the WHO had been influenced to that extent. And, mm. you know, the lack of transparency. And in the West, it's like, we believe like, oh, if you say something, it's true, right? And so we believed what was, as in the US, US government, all these countries, we believed what was coming out of China. It's like, oh, okay, yeah. And then the WHO, and then we didn't realize that you know, that was behind it all was the Chinese Communist Party and just covering up their tracks. And we still don't know, right? We still don't know Mm -hmm. exactly how it started, what happened. And Perhaps we will never know because of all the cover-ups and a lack of transparency. And I think because of this process, it's been a great example of how the Chinese regime has been able to influence and put its own model in other places to the point that you have a country like America that says it stands for freedom with people just following rules and like, hiding in their homes and even calling out neighbors and stuff and turning on each other and on like now we've wiped out decades of improvement in the academic sector right it's like we're gonna feel these effects for Mm. years to come we don't even know the extent of the damage yet and that all came from I think a bit being too naive and not realizing just how to deal like how insidious something like the Chinese communist regime can be and realizing that so many institutions around the world have actually been influenced and infiltrated. And hopefully going forward, we'll learn from that um, and not do that mistake again. Uh, but you know that's, I guess what fingers crossed like hopefully we've learned from history
1: I, I hope so too well um, on that note Tiffany thank you so much for joining me and for sharing your uh, uh, wonderful insights with us uh, it's been a real pleasure and I really hope to have you back on my show sometime soon
2: of course it's been my honor thank you